1957, a sensitive American official overseas said that it seemed to him that our nation was on the wrong side. How is the sound level there? Is it good? A little loud? I got some stitches. I got of a uh, world revolution. Some notoriety and during the past ten years. We have seen emerge a pattern of suppression which has now justified the presence of U.S. militants for swimming in integrated pools and being
Good evening. Can you hear well in the back? Okay. So we're celebrating uh, Dr. King's holiday today. And on this metta retreat, um, I want to explore this quote from Cornell West. Justice is what love looks like in public. Just like tenderness is what love feels like in private. Dr. Cornell West is a professor of philosophy at the Union Theological Seminary. He's also author of The Radical King, a book that um, points to Dr. King's more radical teachings. Sometimes we like to select just the palatable messages of Dr. King um, from the March on Washington and the messages on integration. But after that, Dr. King got more and more radical. And, um, yeah, our, our country those in power in our country found him so threatening that um, they did things to make it easier to, to assassinate him. So on this metta retreat, we've been exploring both what love looks like in our intimate relationships, but also what it looks like in our world, knowing that we are intimately connected with all other beings on this planet and the earth herself. At a time when 1% of humanity has come to own 82% of the wealth, at a time of polycrisis, where we have climate catastrophe, refugee crises that come from these climate catastrophes, so connected to militarism, um, dependence on fossil fuels, racism, xenophobia, all these ways of oppressing and dominating. and a growing inequality. We have billionaires using money for space travel when so many millions of people are struggling to meet basic needs right here on Earth. So metta, metta includes all beings, all species, all the elements, the rocks, the air, the waters, the earth, the entire cosmos. In a letter from the Birmingham jail, Dr. King writes, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality 
tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. So I, uh, I asked to be able to offer the talk tonight because um, in my family, um, there's a, a very deep connection to Dr. King. I, I don't know if I would be here if it weren't for Dr. King, literally. Um, my dad worked with Dr. King in the civil rights movement. And it was because of that that he ended up being in the midst of inner city Chicago, on the west side of Chicago, where he met my mom. And after Dr. King was killed, uh, they had even more motivation to start an interracial family and may not have gotten there without that, um, that deep sense of wanting to to honor and continue Dr. King's work. So I want to introduce you to a special guest that I'm going to invite to say a few words to us. Um, my dad, Al Lingo, who, <laughs> who worked with Dr. King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC, in the Civil Rights Movement. Um, he's a Christian minister and a Buddhist lay Dharma teacher ordained by Thich Nhat Hanh. He's 87, and he grew up in Texas and later lived all over the world, working in human development projects and practicing engaged Christianity and then engaged Buddhism, uh, renewing the church, working and living with the poor in India, in the Philippines, um, in Chicago and Atlanta. He also became a practitioner of psychosynthesis, teaching workshops on unconditional love and forgiveness that I grew up attending as a teenager. So he lives in Atlanta now, and uh, he would have loved to have joined us live, but we didn't have the AV support to do that. Uh, so this is a recording that we made yesterday um, of him sharing some of his experience with Dr. King as a way to honor, honor him, honor us on this day. And one of the things he said when he came and spoke to this same gathering two years ago on the Metta retreat, he said, I, I couldn't have become fully human if it weren't for Dr. King. Tell, tell that story about the pool. You know, um, Lyndon Johnson saw a picture of uh, two white men and four black folks, one guy about age, 
of my, myself, about 28, and three young teenagers from Albany, Georgia. They were women. And we had integrated a pool where uh, nobody had been allowed to even have a meal. And um, no black people. Yeah, no black people for sure. And um, Martin King was part of a protest there and been arrested there. He happened that day to be at the front door of the motel talking to the motel manager, uh, James Brock. And Brock said, you cannot come in my restaurant as long as we have segregation laws. That's the law of the land. And then he heard that his pool was integrated behind the restaurant. And he raced away from the front door, came back and told us to get out of his pool. We didn't get out. So he began to put, oh, some kind of acid and whatever else that they clean that pool with. And it could sting you a little bit, but if you had been swimming a good bit in your life like I had and others had, it didn't bother you. But the young women, they, they got frightened because they didn't want their skin scarred by all that. So we kept that kind of water away from us. We stayed in there. The police came, the Martin King came around that side and he started laughing. He was really enjoying what we were doing. And about that time, one of the policemen leaped from the side of the pool. Well, now there were cameras there at the pool from ABC, NBC, CBS, and they caught this guy in the air flying down upon us. And then we could splash water at him if we wanted to. We were as big and strong, if not more so than he was. But we let him move us toward the edge of the pool. As we got toward the edge, the policemen who were crowded around the pool began to pull us out and uh, take us uh, to a van and haul us off to jail. When Linda Johnson saw the pictures of this man flying through the air, he decided that the 1964 civil rights legislation that he had been advocating, which had been blocked by Southern senators, Dixocrats, he went to them and he said, listen, now we must have a civil rights bill. This is, this is a destruction of the image of our foreign policy and of our nation, we want, it, we want it stopped. And the politicians said, if you do this, if you force us to do this, Lyndon, then you will sacrifice the South. For the Democrats, it'll become Republican. And he said, that's a small price to pay. Similarly, a year later in Alabama, after Bloody Sunday, another graphic, pictured event he made it possible for the march from selma to montgomery to be continued and supported by the 
Alabama National Guard, which he federalized. And then he made a speech, which he said, we shall overcome. Everybody should have the right to vote. And it so happened that in 64, after Lyndon Johnson got the Senate Dixiecrats out of the way, we got a civil rights bill, August the 2nd, for public accommodations. And in the summer of 1965, we got a voting rights bill. And I had the chance to have the glory of being associated with both of those occasions. I was on that Bloody Sunday March, after the Bloody Sunday March, I organized and participated in organizing and leading the march from Selma to Montgomery. And um, it itself was a kind of an amazing experience. You went ahead and found the places for people to spend the night? Well, we, we had a team that, that found uh, farmers who would let us put up tents and bring our folks from the march, they would might be a quarter of a mile to a half a mile off the road, but we could go there. The last place that we gathered was at St. Jude's, a hospital and school on the edge of Montgomery. And I was really responsible for locating that and getting that done. And Harry Belafonte, James Baldwin and people like that came the last night of the march to celebrate the arrival of the marchers and um, to give us some real entertainment, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and so forth. I had the opportunity to have fried chicken with James Baldwin. I didn't know quite what I was doing. I read Baldwin a little bit and was honored by that. And Jim Bevel, a direct action field general, really, for SCLC, for whom I still worked, uh, got me to have dinner with such good people. Later, back So, um, thank you, Dad. <laughs> so many more stories, but I thought I would just show you a few of the pictures that I pulled together that showed some of his his work. So that that slide, I don't know if you go to the next slide, that's the video. Yeah, that's just a, a picture of um, you know white supremacists in in Saint Augustine. So that was the first place my dad uh, joined the movement, and um, and he was told uh, he was. He was helping testify in Jacksonville, Florida, against, um, you know, a lot of the sheriffs in these southern towns gave badges to Ku Klux Klan's members. So they were testifying and getting them, they succeeded in getting their badges removed. But meanwhile, some people, reporters from Houston came to my dad and said, you know, they're planning to kill you. So, um, uh he, you know, would get moved around, in, but he stayed on in St. Augustine. And so the next slide. Um, so that's my dad walking in a protest. 
And the next one. So that's at Monson uh, Motor Lodge in front of the restaurant. This is uh, where a lot of the um, protests happened. Um, and, and this particular picture also, there were 17 rabbis that came down from the north to, to join the movement and the protests here. And I read a report, a, a beautiful story about them, and, it, and it, it said when they were all arrested, then these two other white men who had integrated the pool were arrested, and it talked about this Texan, which I think must have been my dad. So he was in the same prison cell as these 17 rabbis. It was meant for six people, the prison cell. So the next slide... So that's uh, uh, James Brock, the motel owner, pouring acid. And that's my dad in the pool. The next side, another one pouring acid. And the next one, and that's the police officer Uh jumping in. (laughs) And this, this... picture went across the world on the front page of all the major newspapers and it was really what you know what caused Lyndon Johnson and and other people to be like this just can't can't be allowed to stand and the next slide and that's my dad in the pool yeah that's my dad getting arrested in his swimming trunks (laughs) and the next one so that's J.T. JT Johnson, one of the people who integrated the pool with him. They both told their story on StoryCorps. If, if you want to hear them both tell the story, he, he says, J.T. Johnson says, I'm not so sure the Civil Rights Act would have been passed had there not been a St. Augustine. Um, and the next one. So my dad took us back to St. Augustine just in December, just a few not even a month ago. And um, Cora Tyson, who he's with right there, is 100 years old. And she still drives, and she still takes care of herself. She lives alone. And she started this Accord Civil Rights Museum in St. Augustine. If you're ever there, go visit. It's a little, little place in the offices of the dentist, Dr. Robert Haling, who was the the center of the civil rights movement in St. Augustine. His family endured so much violence and brutality, and he was so courageous, and he kept kept the movement alive. So they did the museum in his dental offices right across the street from her house. So when we got a chance to go there, they unveiled um, a special plaque together, my dad and Cora Tyson, kind of... um, marking this landmark place. And the next picture, that's at St. Paul's AME Church where um, all the mass marches would start. Everyone would gather at the church. There would be a sermon. There would be singing and, um, you know, gearing up the energy to go face brutality and violence on these night marches. They couldn't march during the day because everyone had to work. So they marched at night. And um, Cora Tyson said that this, um, the pastor of this church, when he was approached, so no, no churches would give the marchers permission to meet in their churches. Everyone was scared. And the pastor of this AME church said, you can do it here. And then he asked his bishop, 
And the bishop said, I am with you 100%. And so that, you know, but every, every step along the way, people were taking huge risks just to have people meet in their church to then go march, right? And I think there's maybe one more. Oh, oh, and so this is the, this is the Bloody Sunday March in Selma, um, Alabama, um, a year later, about a year later. And that's my dad, where it says 85, the white guy in the beret. I think there were two white folks on that march in Bloody Sunday. And there's one more, I think, picture. That's him again. And, and Abraham Joshua Heschel. I mean, and Bloody Sunday or the actual march to, like, two weeks later? Yeah, he came on the, on the one two weeks later. Yeah. Yeah, so um, you can keep that slide up. Um, so just, I've never shared these pictures publicly, and it's really lovely to get to do a little show and tell about my dad um, appropriately on today. Um, so I did want to also talk about the relationship between Dr. King and another person very influential in my life, um, Venerable Thich Nhat Hanh, my, uh, my teacher with whom I uh, ordained as a nun and lived for 15 years. And Thai had a, we call Thich Nhat Hanh Thai in Vietnamese, it means teacher. And they had a, a very deep bond even though they only met twice um, in, the, in the 60s. He really um, was one of the key influencers of Dr. King to come out against the war in Vietnam. And Dr. King nominated Thai for the Nobel Peace Prize in 1967. And so uh, they met at one point at, in Geneva at a Pachem in Terrace Peace on Earth conference. And um, Thai had been delayed by the press, and Dr. King had kept his breakfast warm up in his room. And so they got together and had breakfast, and he was able to tell Dr. King, Martin, in Vietnam, we call you a bodhisattva a being of of great awakening, of great love. So, um, you can turn it. Thank you. So I was very fortunate to have grown up um, under, sort of, I I feel kind of like I was my, I was embraced by Dr. King in, in my growing up. Um, as well as as Thai, um, and both of them really spent their lives building the beloved community, which seeks to manifest both the tenderness of love in private and justice, what love looks like in public. So how might we practice to do the same? Cultivating metta to 
to live and to demonstrate what love looks like in public. So one of the the ways I think we can do this is to see the connection between caring for ourselves and caring for others. That the two aren't actually separate. So if we think about an infinity symbol on one end of this the circle we're caring for ourselves and that leads us quite naturally to care for others which leads us hopefully back to care for ourselves because that's the only way we can continue to care for others but there's no difference really it's one line it's one continuum and you just find yourself at different points on the continuum um and so um Because we're not separate from others, when we care for ourselves, we are caring for others. We are manifesting um, the possibility for transformation collectively. Even if it doesn't seem like it, sometimes we can feel selfish. Anybody feel guilty or selfish for coming on retreat? Some, yeah, I, I heard that in some interviews. I remember when I became a nun, I had this doubt, you know, we were talking about the comparing mind earlier today, and I was thinking about my dear friend from college who was doing work with indigenous peoples in the Amazon and trying to help them protect their land from being exploited by oil companies. And I thought, here I am in rural France in this monastery um, is that really enough compared to what she's doing to, you know, change the world? So I had this kind of, you know, self-doubt. And, and I sat with it and I thought, you know, if I look at Thai, my teacher's example, he did a lot of time practicing in the monastery as a young monk, developed his mind, but always had the the sense that practice needed to respond to the needs of the world. It wasn't this reclusive thing. And, you know, went on to offer retreats to all, all walks of life, retreats for business people, retreats for police officers, law enforcement officers, visiting prisons to speak with people in prison. We had retreats for Israelis and Palestinians where groups would come to Plum Village for two weeks and practice together and just listen to each other, share about their suffering. And they went back to the West Bank and started a sangha that's still going, a meditation group where Israelis come to the West Bank to practice meditation together with Palestinians. He was offering, you know, coming to speak in parliaments and Congress and Davos at the World Economic Forum and Google. And anyway, when I looked at, like, the things he was doing that we were helping do with him too, because we'd often travel to these places with him, I thought, because he's done this inner work, he's able to do all this service 
So maybe it's not the wrong choice for me to be in the monastery and develop my mind and heart. And so Thay would often say that monasteries, our monasteries could serve as centers where activists and those you know, doing this really um, intense work in the world could come and find refuge. You know, so that was a way to, to be part of that, right? By supporting that. A spirit rock is, could see it like that too, as a place where people can come and get resource so they can continue to do the important work of social change. Um, there's a beautiful documentary about the life of Howard Thurman, a black theologian and um, mystic who was kind of the spiritual mentor of Dr. King. And it talked about his role in the civil rights movement. He wasn't out there on the front lines marching, but when Dr. King and other leaders needed spiritual nourishment, they would go to him. So there's many, many places you can be on this continuum, right, of service. So some have asked here on this retreat about metta practice, how it can help with injustice and suffering in the world. How can you love yourself and love your oppressors? So this, this path of nonviolence that Gandhi, that Dr. King, that Thich Nhat Hanh, um, have walked is is a path that loves ourself because it um, calls us to our highest unfolding as a human, but it's also a path that loves those that are causing harm. Knowing that they are victims of ignorance. Jesus on the cross said, forgive them for they know not what they do to those who crucified him. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the organization that Dr. King founded, its mission was to save the soul of America. Its mission wasn't to gain civil rights for black people. It was bigger than that. It was about the oppressed and the oppressor. So that is this recognition of our oppressors, those that are causing harm, saying, we know you have an aspiration to realize your full humanity, even if you're ignorant of it. Somewhere down in there, it exists. And if you don't believe in it, we believe in it. So King talked about this double victory of winning both civil rights, dignity for the oppressed, but also freeing the oppressors from their cruelty and inhumanity. The Visuddhimagga, this ancient text that we've been pointing to this week, um, talks about metta as a solvent 
that melts not only one's psychic pollutants, but also that of others. So even hostile ones can become friends in the warmth of metta. Bishop Tutu was known also to pray for five hours every morning. And um, people would ask his assistants, can't he be more available? Can't he, you know, do this and this and this? And they would say to them, well, if you want Bishop Tutu, this is Bishop Tutu. This is what makes him Bishop Tutu, is these five hours of prayer every day. Right? So, the same with our metta practice, you know, this powerful shaping and growing of our minds and hearts. And the Buddha said, it's with our minds that we create the world. So if our minds are purified, if our minds are deeply cultivated, that's the kind of world we will have. So taking time to cultivate our hearts has a big impact on our world. We're not just here for ourselves. So on the other hand, we've talked about how taking care of ourselves is taking care of our world. It's also the case that taking care of others is taking care of ourselves. Um, We know that research on happiness shows that the highest happiness people report comes from doing kind things for others. That's the most lasting happiness. We get a thrill when we buy something new, but it goes away really quick. Um, when we do, when we learn something new, that's like the next most intense and longer-lasting kind of happiness, but then the one that's really the most fulfilling and the most lasting is when we practice altruism, when we do things for others. And I remember once when I was um, a nun and feeling quite confused and um, just down, I remember Ty giving me a letter of a, of a man who had written to him for spiritual support, and this man was quite in quite a desperate situation with suicidal thoughts, but just very lonely, very isolated. And I, Ty said, would you write back to him for me? And doing that really took me out of my own small world of, of my situation and opened my heart of compassion and was, was very helpful for my own mind state. And so Tai has said, I don't want to live in a world without suffering because then I can't develop compassion. Without compassion, we can't be happy. The Dalai Lama says something similar Warm-heartedness is the key factor for a happy life. And on this planet, there are lots of problems, mainly caused by selfishness. 
A more altruistic mind brings more happiness. The next thing I'd like to mention that can help us manifest what love looks like in public, justice, is the energy of bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is a Sanskrit word. Chitta means mind, mind mind-heart. Bodhi is awakening. And so it's this impulse for awakening that's in all of us. We're we're all here on retreat because some part of us knows I can awaken my mind and heart. There's a Buddha inside of me that is wanting to uh, be uncovered. And bodhicitta, similar to the four immeasurable minds of love, It's an inexhaustible source of energy and confidence. It's also called the mind of love. Very close to metta. So bodhicitta offers us a path and faith in that path. It's this deep aspiration to awaken for ourselves, but also to help all beings to awaken, to leave no one out. And there's a beautiful line in one of the chants in the Plum Village chanting book that says, once I have a path, I have nothing more to fear. So bodhicitta is this, is a path. Like, I'm here for a reason. I'm here to wake up. I'm here to help others. And when we take that path, we have so much energy. We have so much courage. And it's what led Prince Siddhartha on his path of awakening for the benefit of countless beings. This seed that was pulling him out of the palace, into the the forest. It's the the energy that's motivated all the people that have been part of incredible social change. Harriet Tubman, Mother Teresa, Nelson Mandela, Greta Thunberg, Malala, all these people that have sacrificed so much because they had a deep belief that things could be different. It's motivating millions of people everywhere, all of us in this hall, to live our lives on behalf of something bigger. Dr. King describes an experience of profound trust and confidence, an experience of bodhicitta in his book, Stride Toward Freedom, about the Montgomery bus boycott. This happened um, in January 1956 
after receiving an anonymous phone call in which he was told, leave Montgomery immediately if you have no wish to die. He got frightened. He hung up the phone. He walked to his kitchen with trembling hands, put on a pot of coffee, and sank into a chair at his kitchen table. He described what happened afterwards in these words. I was ready to give up. With my cup of coffee sitting untouched before me, I tried to think of a way to move out of the picture without appearing a coward. In this state of exhaustion, when my courage had all but gone, I decided to take my problem to God. With my head in my hands, I bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud. The words I spoke to God that midnight are still vivid in my memory. I am here taking a stand for what I believe is right, but now I am afraid. The people are looking to me for leadership, and if I stand before them without strength and courage, they too will falter. I am at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. At that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced God before. It seemed as though I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and God will be at your side forever. Almost at once, my fears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared. I was ready to face anything. So Dr. King shows us, even in the midst of despair, even in the midst of helpless vulnerability, we can accept our powerlessness. And what first appears like weakness actually becomes a gift that leads us to surrender and trust. Once I have a path, I have nothing more to fear. So Dr. King really, really talked about the need to, to investigate deeply, to really inquire in our hearts as individuals, as a collective, what are we really about? What are our real values? What is it that we want to be our legacy? And he was asking about bodhicitta. What is it that motivates us? Bodhicitta, when we're motivated by love, that's a very clean fuel, like solar energy and electric cars. It It doesn't produce pollution other kinds of fuel that we may use to do things may, may not always be so good for us, but, but bodhicitta, love, 
It's, it keeps us going and going and going. But Dr. King, when he spoke out about the war in Vietnam, was really asking us to ask the deepest question we could ask about why are we here? Individually, as a nation, as a collective. So I'm going to invite Dr. King to speak to us directly just a few um, minutes from his um, very very important speech at Riverside Church in New York in 1967, Beyond Vietnam. Peru, it is with such activity in mind that the words of the late John F. Kennedy come back to haunt us. Five years ago, he said, those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. Increasingly by choice or by accident, this is the role our nation has taken, the role of those who make peaceful revolution impossible by refusing to give up the privileges and the pleasures that come from the immense profits of overseas investments. I am convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin, we must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society when machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism and militarism are incapable of being conquered. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside. Thank you. Yeah. He says a little further down, uh, a nation that continues to year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. And this real revolution of values that Dr. King speaks of involves spiritual and moral cultivation. This inner part of the infinity symbol that can take us to the outer to really be agents that can heal our planet and heal our world. We really need both.
as wars continue to rage all over the planet, we also, it's important to look at where are our values. There's such a connection between war and fossil fuels and what we say is important. Um, There's some important work being done around the carbon emissions that happen connected to war and how um, the world's armed forces and the industries that provide their equipment have conservatively been estimated to comprise 5% of the world's total carbon emissions. That's excluding the impacts of the wars themselves on carbon emissions. So just military, militarism. So this is from Nemo Basi, a Nigerian poet, writer, and environmental activist. The true environmental impact of war is impossible to quantify because it affects a staggering array of sectors and every aspect of human well-being. Wars kill people, extinguish biodiversity, and destroy the infrastructure that could otherwise provide safeguards in the face of extreme weather events. Warfare is an act of climate denial. So, In 2023, how, what percentage of our budget do you think we spent on militarism? Large. Yeah. Almost two-thirds. Almost two-thirds. 62%. 5% was spent on education. 1% on agriculture. on transportation. I was just thinking about, like, if we each thought about this as our own households and our own annual income, can you imagine spending almost two-thirds of your money on guns, security guards, and a security system, and only 1% on food? It would either be a very paranoid or a very bullyish way to live. Maybe a paranoid bully. But it's like if your main tool is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. Right? Less than $2 out of every five in federal discretionary spending was available to fund investment in people and communities, including primary and secondary public education, housing programs, child care programs, federal disaster relief, environmental programs, and scientific research. The U.S. spent $16 on the military and war for every $1 that was spent on diplomacy and humanitarian foreign aid. 
The vast majority of militarized spending was for weapons, war, and the Pentagon at $920 billion. Only $56 billion was spent for international affairs, diplomacy, and humanitarian foreign aid. What could be possible if, if it was the opposite? If we spent so much more money on training peacemakers and getting the people with the best ideas and the most metta in positions of decision-making. We haven't. We haven't invested in that. What if we put our money there? So let me close with a quote of Dr. King. In the final analysis, love is not this sentimental something that we talk about. It's not merely an emotional something. Love is creative, understanding goodwill for all people. It is the refusal to defeat any individual. When you rise to the level of love, of its great beauty and power, you seek only to defeat evil systems. Individuals who happen to be caught up in that system you love but you seek to defeat the system. So let's sit and just be with our breathing, our body for a few moments. period and then come back for sitting and chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.